Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Welcome to the Interdependence Podcast, where we host conversations with some of the people we think are shaping 21st century culture. If you're hearing this, then you're listening to the shorter free version. If you're enjoying what we're doing and would like to hear the full episode, please visit patreon.com interdependence and become a patron. In this episode, we welcome David Turner, writer and founder of the Penny Fractions newsletter, which holds a critical and often political lens to the latest developments in the music industry. In this episode, we discuss the music industry response to Black Lives Matter, positive infrastructural proposals that could lead to long-lasting and meaningful diversification, the meme music economy, lessons from ad hoc protest gatherings, and sitting on a small plane with Radiohead and Cilento. David is a deeply thoughtful and fun guest, so we hope you enjoy this one. Okay. Hey, David. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I just cut my hand, but that's fine. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> well, please don't bleed out on our uh, on our time. It is, um, <laughs> blood is coming through the band-aid, but it'll be fine for the recording. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you need to pause, yeah, exactly. Have some have some water, or like make sure that you have like a padded environment around you in case you do pass out from oh the blood god, loss. Matt. <laughs> um, I have water. I have water. Okay, so so to qualify this a little bit, um, so I've been reading uh, your amazing newsletter, uh, Penny Fractions, for a couple of years now, um, and and I really have to commend you that I think it it's it's really rare to read something that elegantly balances a very very thorough kind of industrial analysis with a clear minded critique, right? So like, if you're lucky, you might usually get one or the other. And normally in my position, uh, you know, I'm always trying to piece those two things together. Um, but I think that it, it, what you're doing in a sense, when you when you combine the two, it, it kind of elega- it elevates the quality to, to a different category, right? Like uh, when you combine that critique with a very kind of embedded a knowledgeable stance on, on, on music industry um, developments, you end up with words that... Um, that people can potentially uh, 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 do something with. Um, and so f- flattery aside, um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you started the Penny Fraction Projects uh, in the first place? Yes. Also, I like that you refer to it as a project right there, because that's actually something <laughs> I've been trying to do more recently is conceive of Penny Fractions, which is a, week, which is a sort of semi-weekly newsletter um, mm-hmm. as a project. So I, I got started, I guess, as like, a blogger on Tumblr. So just, I'll go way back and then I can speed through. But like I wrote on Tumblr when I was a teenager and then eventually I got sort of discovered by some music journalists and I did freelance music writing. And then I graduated from college and then sort of popped into the world of music journalism. So I worked at MTV News for a year. I've written for like Pitchfork, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, doing reviews, interviews, and just sort of that standard fare. And then when I got let go from MTV News in 2016, at the end of 2016, I 
kind of got burnt out a bit on writing like personal stuff or writing like critique and just wanted to go a little bit more into like the industry side of things because like that just seemed more interesting and also seemed like a better path for me as a freelancer. But I guess it's something that I could talk a bit about is like having niches as a freelancer to sort, to sort of like mm-hmm. make a name for myself. So I started doing that in 2017. And so I started just sort of learning more about the music biz. Like I grew up like watching MTV, VH1 and reading a ton endless Wikipedia pages and stuff like that. And like watching documentaries and reading music books. So I felt like I had a good sense of the, I felt like I had a good sense of the normal history of music where you start from like the blues, to rock and roll and to all of that kind of stuff. People always getting screwed over by like shady record industry guys. Like I felt like I had that like history pretty down. But as I started reading more about like Spotify and streaming, I just felt like it felt like bullshit. And not like bullshit in the way that it was like, oh, people aren't getting paid. Like I kind of always knew that if I never, it's why I've actively avoided using Uber and Lyft and stuff when I moved to New York City, because I was like, mm. these are like shitty platforms. I don't want to like contribute to them. Even if my analysis really wasn't much deeper than that. It was like, I kind of had like a instinctual, like liberal sense of like, oh, these are unfair and unjust. And I don't like them. Same with streaming really. Um, but mm. what the story that sort of like tipped me off that eventually sort of led to Penny Fractions was... Spotify was accused of having fake artists on some of their playlists in 2017. And I just thought that seemed hilarious. And I was like, oh, let me like look this up. And I did what I do often, which is I get really into something and just started researching it really heavily. And I just sort of realized they did have fake artists on their playlist. Not fake as in like they didn't exist, but they essentially just had stuff from this company, Epidemic Sound, that was populating a lot of their chill and mood and activity playlists. And so as I researched more of that and then I was supposed to write a story for it that eventually got killed, I was like, oh, I want to keep doing this more. And I was like emailing friends about this. And then that same summer, I was talking to Liz Pelly, who is the best. Love Liz. Love her on, on y'all's show. <laughs> um, and Liz was also writing similarly about sort of playlists and sort of eventually working toward what would be her sort of like big baffling piece, The Problem with Muzak. So kind of suddenly myself and Liz were like writing about these things. And I sort of started the newsletter because I was kind of getting tired of like ceasing 20 friends, all these sort of rambly emails describing why Wired stories were bad. <laughs> and was like, okay, why don't I just like start a tiny letter? Y'all can sign up for it. And sort of like, we can see what happens from there. And so I started in late 2017 and I just had a, I didn't really have like a big vision of it. I think I only had really two goals. One was to get 5,000 subscribers, which is an entirely arbitrary number, but I was like, 5,000 just sounded like a lot and like it'd be like a good number to have. And then also I had this thought that like whenever I stopped doing the newsletter, I would let people know, which seems really small, but I just really wanted to hold myself accountable for this project and the audience that may have been built to be like, hey, if I stop doing this at some point, it'll be that you'll know why I stopped doing it and it won't just end abruptly, which is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things now that I think about it. But I think it's been very helpful in grounding myself and like not being too frivolous or being too like, oh, I'll just stop doing this for a month or something. It's like, no, I want to have like a dialogue and a respectful like conversation with the people that are reading this so they kind of know where I'm at, which I think has been sort of fruitful and definitely made me more attached to the product as I've done it more. Yeah, it's amazing. And it also, I mean, bringing up obviously your work, uh, Liz's work, it, it kind of opens up this this new category in a way that was, in a way, it was kind of like needing people to occupy that space where I think, you know, I mean, traditionally, right, you've had like business journalists. So people who 
look at machinations and developments on the business end. Um, you've had music journalists that, you know, largely have been responsible for kind of, you know, para-promotional um, work around things happening in the kind of the cultural space. And then, you know, you have this like alien spaceship land, you know, near 15, 20 years ago, which is basically the tech industry, right? Mm-hmm. And like <clears throat> having in a sense, I, I, and I feel for a lot of people who've been in the in the industry for a really long time, because unless you're kind of like growing up with like a really keen awareness of how these platforms um modulate everything around them for in some cases better and in many cases uh, worse it's really just kind of like a different awareness that's needed to be able to analyze like what's happening outside of promotional language right so in, in a way like i feel like a lot for example streaming services or other uh tech apps or whatever that enter the music space it's not like they get a free pass but functionally kind of they end up getting somewhat of a free pass because there just isn't that fluency from people who are used to critiquing culture about what their objectives might be right in a way like they're kind of invited in uh, this is the using the vampire metaphor right yeah. like um, in a way they're kind of like invited in in ways that uh where people may have previously been really skeptical if you were to talk about like traditional financialization right mm-hmm. um and so i'm really i'm really grateful to the newsletter for that in a sense is that it kind of like it speaks to that nexus point that I think is very vital um, and is just under serviced by even, you know, music publications that I really like. They just, they feel out of water when they, when they, uh, when they try and approach these issues. Yeah. I want to say, so I think one of my original points of, I guess like one of my critical, I guess like how I sort of started thinking more critically about certain things in terms of some of these spaces, which is like public relations. So when I was in high high school, I listened to like a lot of podcasts, which is funny because podcasts in 2006 were not a very big thing, but I listened to a lot of podcasts and the podcasts I listened to often featured people like video game journalists complaining about PR people. And that was like a constant refrain was complaining about public relations and how they're manipulating messages and how they essentially are just trying to sell you shit. And like, that was very helpful to me because I... I guess had never really thought much about that because in in school, you're not really taught a lot about like public relations. Like you're not really taught about messaging and how they, and how products are sold to you or how, yeah. or how like language is used in any particular ways. So as I started hearing people just sort of like essentially was like water cooler chat complaining about the PR person sending them like an annoying email or just bothering them on the phone, I started really realizing it was like, oh, that's kind of, a way of sort of like understanding some of these things as a way as a way in. So like when I read about Spotify, and I think I, and I do this a lot in my newsletter still, which is reading through press releases. I love reading through press releases. I realize this is a thing that a number of newsletters I like do is reading through press releases and actually reading the copy in press releases because usually in reading that stuff, I get a better sense of what the company's the act how the company actually views itself instead of through sort of the media of a of like a billboard or a spin or whatever where like they have to sort of like interpret that press release like let me just go straight to the original thing like i if i remember mm-hmm. correctly 
there's like a press release from I think MySpace in like like 2002 or 2003. I don't, I'm forgetting the year, but it was just this is your press release collection that you're tapping into here. <laughs> yeah, it just I remember them your deep talk, cuts. Yeah, and they were talking about how like the whole point of it was like, oh, we contain eight percent. Like I think it was like eight percent of internet advertising went through MySpace or something, and that was what they were championing. And I was like, oh, well, that tells me everything I need to know about what MySpace actually is. It's not music. Yep. It's not a place for people to meet, it's an advertising. It's about ads. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's why I end up sort of gravitating a lot to those things because it often helps sort of get through a lot of the clutter. And in yep. technology and music especially, there's just so much clutter. There's just so many yep. things that you have to wade through. Like like an example, I guess like a recent one would be, I guess like this company, Audio Mac, which I wrote about last year, which is like a small music streaming platform that is absolutely uninteresting. There's nothing really that cool about it. It's just like another platform for rappers to put songs. And I guess like also a number of African artists. But if you read like the, the interviews with the people that, that are the heads of a company, they say extremely xenophobic and xenophobic stuff that's all mm. essentially them like trying to cast dispersions against TikTok and like trying mm. to like, trying to essentially play like trying to like sort of build up sort of American nationalism as a reason to care about audio Mac compared to TikTok, And like, mm-hmm. that's like a really weird thing. And it's also like a very like troubling thing to me, but it's like a thing that if unless you read music biz press or you actually read press releases, you have no reason to know that. But to me, it's actually a really good way to understand that part of the re- and, and so why is audio Mac doing that? It basically be the question. And like, the reason is that Audio Mac is mostly backed by the major labels. It's backed by like Sony, yeah. Universal, and Warner. And Sony, Universal, and Warner don't really like TikTok a lot because TikTok is a thing that, oh, sorry, when I said Audio Mac, I meant Triller. I apologize for this. I meant don't Triller. Worry, don't worry. They're like essentially the same meaningless thing to me, essentially. Um, and like <laughs> Triller. So, like, if you read, it's like xenophobic stuff. And it's all because Triller is a short form video app. Same with TikTok. And major labels would much rather you be using Triller than TikTok because they have better deals with, tri- with Triller. So, it's like, yeah, yeah. well, that <laughs> actually explains sort of the xenophobic sort of like lean of it because it's explicitly trying to get people against TikTok, trying to be like tiktok is run by the chinese Ooh, the china communism bad <laughs> we're thriller america good and it's like yeah, yeah oh yeah i don't i but like that's the kind of stuff that like if i don't actually read the like source text that i kind of am just like well why are people talking so much about this random app yeah totally i mean it's funny i i i, I teach a class with with a bunch of students who i'd say are like 18 to 21 usually um it's one thing we talk about often actually is like there's been all kind of new developments of basically tools to be able to dissect language that are maybe more familiar to a generation that have grown up in certain online environments i mean you mentioned tumblr for example Mm. um the other thing i always bring up excuse me um the other thing I always bring up, for example, is like the new field of user experience design, right? <laughs> Which is very much a kind of like new thing. I mean, it refers to some older things, but it's kind of a new thing. Um, and so when you're dealing with companies that are often largely opaque, right, the signals that you have to be able to critique them in order to be able to tell where you stand, you know, whether or not you want to compliment them or critique them are twofold, right? Like you have, as you've put it, exactly, their promotional language. And on top of that, you have, you know, kind of like the old cybernetic principle of like a system is what it does, not what it says, mm-hmm. right? Like, 
a system is basically what it does, um, is you look at user experience decisions that are being made that in a sense tell you what to expect them to say, right? And somewhere in between the promotional language and the 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 truth in a sense of of the user experience design gives you a, maybe a far more accurate way of being able to tell or read you know what what the 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 explicit goals of that company are well also as david says where the money is flowing yeah, yeah exactly well that's but, but but these are all just tools that it feels like very necessary 21st century skills in order to be able to understand what is actually happening versus as you say like the promotional minefield um, and the advertising minefield of of the clearnet internet, right? Yeah. So, oh, the user design is actually something that I've, I've done this in my newsletter a few times, but I have I don't I haven't done it as much recently. I think I'm going to probably do it in a, at some point over the summer again. But so an ex, a good example of this is like Spotify when they introduced like the donation, I guess sort of like their donation button slash feature. And mm-hmm. I always remember when I saw that, and I tweeted this like from my the, the Penny Fraction Twitter account, where I was like, well. Unless, like, this button involves, like, an entire... Unless, like, Spotify is about to spend the marketing budget it does for, like, album releases and stuff to promote this button, this doesn't mean anything. Because unless they're about to put all of the millions of dollars it would take to, one, not only train, train and, like, build up teams for artists to actually create a sustainable way to use this feature... It just doesn't really mean anything. And then also the fact that like when you go to it, it's not like a thing that, sorry, it's using thing a lot, but it's not like a feature that you immediately can find <laughs> and it's not something that is like immediately accessible. And so yep. it is sort of like a thing where you're right, you, have, you can use both of those to sort of get to a better understanding of what the company is doing and get a better understanding of even if it's something you should concern yourself with. I guess a lot in music, and especially because like a lot of music and technology involves a lot of people getting really excited by very minor updates or tweaks to things that already exist. And so <laughs> yeah. I really, really try just to like tamper down any excitement or anything because I just finished reading a book that was called The History of Napster. And the when Napster was about to go under, their immediate thought was, well, we can just do advertisements or subscriptions. And it's like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I can just ignore the last 20 years of music streaming stuff because we already did that in 2000. Like, we already yep. did. <clears throat> Well, and also thank fuck that you're actually doing a deep historical reading of this stuff, right? Because it, it is uncanny to me, like when you look at, um, yeah, when you look at like the conversations that were happening around Napster, also how, you know, the, the conversations that we have really haven't been updated exactly as you put it um, since then. And, and that's, that's alarming, but I do, I want to move on a little bit, right? Like um, speaking of uh, the distance between like promotional gestures, meaning something, uh, the promotional gestures and doing something that means something, right? So like, over the past month, um, you've been participating in protests on the ground in New York. Um, and through through the newsletter last week, you wrote a pretty compelling, I would say, critique of hashtag uh, the show must be paused, um, which will for listeners perhaps be known better as the thing that prompted those black square responses um, on Twitter and Instagram. Right. Um, <laughs> and so what I would say is, you know, w- what prompted your critique of this decision to pause affairs? Um and you know our well, I'll, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. We have some things to say. But <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it was just such bullshit. I, I'll try to be more articulate than just calling it bullshit. <laughs> so I, 
And it, okay, so that this is a this is a good segue. So when I saw that original announcement, I just was like, oh, this just came from like the minds of like some press team within like a major label office. I didn't really care which one because there are only three of them that. So it doesn't really matter if it was Sony, Warner, or Universal. It's like someone in the press team was like, we should do something, and they came up with this idea. And that's what I assumed at first before I actually read about it. And I was like, that seems like bullshit. Then I ended up reading that actually it was by essentially two, like two black women, one who's at Atlantic Records and one who's at, I think, Platoon, like the startup at Apple bought, I think, last year. And like they sort of just said that they were sort of reflecting on the death of George Floyd and just sort of thought that it'd be good for people to have a day to sort of reflect and sort of think about that. And mm-hmm. personally, I have my issues with that just as a, immediate response was just to say we must reflect through the idea of action or or trying to invoke change was never on the table for them it was just reflection but mm-hmm. i'll let people reflect on the these moments are not to like say that there must be a universal response to these kinds of moments and obviously people are responding to these deaths in their own way so i don't want to be too critical of that but I did find it a little bit troubling. And so when the show must be paused, sort of like birthed out into an entire like industry wide response to say, we're going to take this time for reflection. It's very different for two individuals to say, I would like for my peers and my and ourselves to maybe take the day off, sort of think and talk amongst ourselves. And then for it to be Universal Music Group, Warner, Sony, and then essentially all other as- aspects of the music industry, like and the broadest sense of that word possible, that phrase possible, to say, we're taking the day off. It's, it's yep. not mm-hmm. a way, I mean, you could use it for reflection, but to me, it just felt kind of like, essentially a kind of an industry lockout where essentially they were saying, Hey, we're just going to stop you guys from just doing your work. And you don't even really get an an opinion on this. It's like, we're just going to do it. And so that it was sort of a top down executive sort of driven decision really rubbed me the wrong way because as a person that is very big on the concepts of, of organized labor, especially in the concepts of labor within music, as even though that is something that's still very, not very, well articulated, I feel. I just felt it was very upsetting to sort of see that essentially the action of withholding labor was sort of co-opted by executives. And yeah. so that really, really sort of bummed me out. And that's why I ended up like writing this bigger critique of it last week. And then I also wanted to say like my other big critique, which I which I'll admit is a little harsh, is just that to me, a lot of the reason for why this exists is mostly as a way for black executives and black people in power to essentially play corporate board games. Because if you have to create a whole initiative or program that are around diversity, people need to head up those programs. People have to get paid to head up those programs. You have to hire consultants. And all of a sudden, there's sort of a new industry. So like, if you're like, if you work at a Universal Music Group or Sony or whatever, and one of these companies says, we're going to devote millions of dollars to a new project, and you're the person that sort of was the head of that, like you're the one that was spearheading it, all of a sudden, you might be able to get a new position or some kind of new sort of way of sort of working in the industry where you'll get a little bit more money and maybe a nicer off. Well, offices don't really exist right now, but like you could have gotten a nicer office and it's sort of gotten a nicer way to sort of like like to advance your career because you're now using this moment to sort of capitalize 
on sort of the white guilt that exists within boardrooms to be, well, if we don't have enough diverse staff at the executive level, maybe we can at least like open up a new department or a new initiative that'll get like tens of millions of dollars, maybe a Coke or Sprite sponsorship. And hey, you get to head that. And you're, you aren't the CEO, you aren't the president or the COO, but you're the head of diversity or something. And like that mm-hmm. comes with a new like high six figure like, like, um, like position. And I feel like that's ultimately what this will result in. And that's sort of what it's sort of positioned itself as, where a lot of the press releases and the content of it was sort of saying, we want to talk to CEOs. We want to get in the boardroom. We want to have conversations. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with me as a regular music industry worker. This isn't going to help me. This is going to help you and your friends. And I don't really have interest to be kind to things that are not trying to help all of us at all in any kind of real way. Yeah, that that portion of the newsletter I found really, really interesting. And you you referenced a quote that I'm going to actually read here because I think it's worth reading out loud. And I will also link to this newsletter in the um, uh, in this episode. I would encourage people to read the whole article. Um, the the quotes from Robert L. Allen's book Black Awakening in Capitalist America from 1969. Um, And so the quote is, the essential purpose for putting black power into business, the creation of a stabilizing black buffer class, which will make possible indirect white control or neocolonial administration of the ghettos, is still guaranteed by the structure of the program. Um, Yeah, which I... I, I, I wasn't aware of that text, so um, that was a really interesting reference. And so I guess the question is, how do we balance the necessity of diversifying perspectives and positions of power with this tension that diversity within existing power structures can indeed cre- create this buffer class? Yeah, so this is why in the newsletter, I sort of like outlined sort of three ideas I think could be helpful t- towards this. One, the first one, which is sort of around wage transparency. I'm a very big proponent of wage transparency. I So I, for context, my previous job that I had was a, as a music journalist, I worked at this site called Track Record, which was um, a music site that didn't officially launch, but it was part of Gizmodo <laughs> Media Group, which was formerly the Gawker website. So Gawker was one of the first, one of the first, not the first, but one of the first digital di- digital media outlets to unionize. And in their union contract, there was um, pay floors. So like, you know, if you're a staff writer, you would be paid $50,000. If you're a senior staff writer, you'd be paid $70,000. If you're an editor, you'd be paid $60,000, so on and so forth. And so to me, that's like a very basic thing. Just pay floors, like public pay floors. I should know how much a job pays. Like I've looked at jobs, like before I got my current job, which is at SoundCloud, I was looking at jobs at like unions or other more like progressive scare post organizations. And they would say, hey, the minimum pay is this. Where in the music industry, if you were to look at like a job listing for a record label, you're not going to say the, the a pay floor or anything. You're just going to say like, hey, how you've worked here, how many years, you're excited to be in the industry, Blah, like whatever boilerplate like text goes there. And yeah, yeah. I find that just, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't like it, but I also just think that it again is a much bigger issue than talking to CEOs about diversity and leadership. Because mm-hmm. if at the very like if when I'm applying to a job, I don't know how much it pays and I don't know how much it pays until I'm at some point within the interview process, I'm going to exert so much potential energy to a job that ultimately may not be right for me. Not only in terms yeah. of fit, but also just in terms of basic pay, especially when you consider the music industry, at least in the United States, is centered in New York City and Los Angeles. So 
Those need to be jobs that actually do compensate you for the amount of money it costs to live in these places. Or if you even live slightly further out in Los Angeles, or maybe you live out in Connecticut or like Jersey and New York, then it's like, how much are, is this going to compensate for like travel? Is this going to compensate for like how much it does cost for parking? Like there are all these things there that are not told in just the basics of like a job listing that should be there. And I don't know why they are not. So that's something that I sort of was, th- was thinking about a little there too. Well, it's just wild that so much of it's left up to negotiation that it's actually like how well you can negotiate rather how qualified you are or how good you are for a job. And that seems really crazy to me. Well, that's the thing. It's it's also reminds me a little bit of like Sheryl Sandberg's lean in philosophy, right? <laughs> yeah. Where in a sense, what seems in a way kind of like a progressive vision Again, when you read, when you try and like read between the lines, what ostensibly is saying is it's down to the individual to assert themselves in those circumstances to negotiate the highest pay possible. When in actuality, it would be quite nice um, for that responsibility to not be kind of, or, or for the organizations themselves to not absolve themselves of the responsibility to look after their workers, right? Um, yeah. Totally. And that's why I feel like this is something that I want to honestly start fighting more for within music is to start having that kind of transparency of wages. And this also applies to me towards executive pay as well. One of the good things about Warner Music's IPO that happened in June was that you could see that their CEO made, I think it was $60 million over the last three years. And that, that was jaw dropping. I could not believe how, yeah, when I read that, my mouth opened. <laughs> it's an absurd amount of money, but like, it's great to know that. Cause now yep. if I worked at Warner and I was being like stiffed on like a pay raise or something, I would be like, so this guy who I've never seen made, uh, made eight figures last year. Um, I feel like we have a budget for me to get like a thousand more dollars. I feel like that's like in the budget. And that's something that you don't really have (laughs) the ability, but you don't have that ability to even ask that question unless you have that knowledge there. So I I think of wage transparency as something that is not at all unionization. It is not at all real worker power, but it is something that at least makes it so people that are trying to get a step, a foot in the industry have a better like sense of what they're, putting themselves into. And then also to me, it's very, very helpful to, if you're on the inside, start having a better way to think through like, okay, if I make this much and my peers also make this much, then you can start in the back, you can do back and napkin math to figure out how much the entire company is actually like worth, how much money it's actually spending every month. And as you Mm -hmm. can start doing that kind of stuff, you can start asking those questions to be like, okay, I know that our team Collectively, it's like 500, I'm just pulling numbers. It's like our team is $500,000 a year. Why does this executive make 1.5 million? Is this executive actually worth three X of our entire team? And you can start asking that question and they have to eventually start giving you reasons to explain that. Because I'm going to guess that like, it's pretty hard to justify a salary like that when people know that. Or at least I would hope so. But that's something that like I really would like to see a little bit more of, especially when like I think of the fact that in music, there's often a lot of sometimes shaming. Actually, I would say shaming similar to professional sports where it's like you see artists that get like the big like a big record deal or something. And it's like, I can't believe someone so made like so many millions of dollars on a record deal. But teachers are only paid so much money. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not who you really should be mad at. 
You should not yeah, be yeah. putting your anger like the like the rapper that got a seven figure contract because teachers make fifty five thousand. It's like you, there are a lot of reasons why teachers make like however much they make, and you should be mad at that. You shouldn't be mad at the rapper that made seven figures because yeah. they're just essentially part of a machine and part of that part of that industry that does that. Perhaps they could make less, but like that's not going to get the teacher to make more. That's not those two things are not at all related to each other, even though there's often a lot of conflation of that kind of stuff. Even though I will actually, I guess I'll caveat to say that I feel like in music, that conversation has probably been a bit less so over the last 10 or 15 years, just because record deals are not quite as public as they have been in the eighties and nineties where you could get yeah, like yeah. huge, like, Oh, um, REM signed like a six album deal that's worth how many tens of millions of dollars. And that's like a big headline. So there is a little bit less of that in music, but I still feel like that like residual idea still lingers in sort of the culture. Totally. I was actually listening this week. There's a, this is very uh, esoteric and neither, neither of you will likely know who I'm talking about, but there's a football player called Troy Deeney who's from the same city as me in the UK. And I listened to a great podcast with him because in the UK, obviously under COVID, there's like a traditional scapegoating of young, often black uh, sports people who are considered to be making egregious amounts of money. And, mm. and in so, you know, and in some cases, a lot of these guys are, are paid, you know, are paid very well, but then in a sense, uh, you know, the, the, the initial kind of shock of seeing some of those figures is not really framed within the context of like the real situation on the ground for those people. So for one, when you're a professional sports person, you know, you're one bad incident away from losing your career. Yeah. Um, you generally have a career that lasts five to 10 years. I mean, to, to equate that with musicians too, right? In many cases, these deals, like musical careers can be very, very short, right? You're, you're yeah. very, very lucky if you reach... And on top of that, like the overheads necessary to run a successful career, um, you know, it's it just it, seeing these figures sometimes, uh, yeah, exactly, can deflect attention, I think, and, and scrutiny to some of the, you know, uh, to, to, to some of the wrong figures um, when you don't really have like the necessary tools to, to take a wider view of like what that money means and also how much of a piece of the pie are they making? You know, like if, if a young kid from from Oakland or whatever is is making uh, you know, 750 grand or something from a major label deal, you can absolutely guarantee that someone's making 10 X on that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, or, or, or that's the goal. So, it, so it, it's very difficult sometimes. And I agree with you, even though, you know, absolutely like, like teacher pay is, is very important. This kind of scapegoating, I think, I think again, is a deflectionary tactic. It, it's not, it doesn't help, you know? No, it definitely does not help. And I think you made a great point there about sort of the shortness of careers. Like, so a, yep. an example of this that I was just saying to someone yesterday was so earlier this year or in late last year, France was like, had a big, massive, like semi general strike that lasted for like, I guess like a month, a month and a half. And one of the, in one of the sort of the things that was interesting to follow was about like dancers. So like Macron, I think I pronounced it Macron, Macron, um, was Macron. trying, <laughs> yeah, was trying to, um, was trying to like, like, uh, was trying to change their pension system and essentially trying to like streamline their pension system, which is a very nice way of saying that of just sort of destroying like what the, the French pension system. And one of the things that like dancers, like professional dancers would talk about was, Hey, we have the ability to retire in our mid forties, which is yep. something that has to happen because for many of us, we've been dancing since we were like seven or eight years old in the physical mm -hmm. wear on your body after 30 plus years of doing that kind of work. It's just, you can't keep doing that indefinitely. And also Absolutely. you have all these other additional medical conditions that are going to be built up after having done dance or any other sort of like repetitive sort of activity for so long. And I really, 
sort of think of that. I sort of think of I sort of think of that as sort of like the opposite version of the musician, where it's like I mean, similar to music, not opposite, but similar to musician, where it's like, hey, this is a long career, but like they have a pension system that they fought for and have it so like when their career ends, they can still live, live a normal life. Whereas a musician in these contexts, it's like a major label. It's like you get all the money up front and that's essentially it. I mean, obviously yeah, there are yeah. plenty that, that figure out ways to make it work and do that kind of stuff. But there are so many that are like this rapper Silento who have this song, Watch me, like watch, watch me from 2016, I think. Or that was we like. We have the, a great story about him, by the way. But keep going. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay. So Lento signed, I think, like a four or five album deal with, I think, Capitol Records, and he never put out an album. And I just well, think about that like constantly, where it's like he had yeah. one hit song that didn't even go number one, which is kind of funny. But like he had one hit song that got that was huge, like not as big as um, Lil Nas X or Old Town Road, but it was very popular. He was on Ellen. Yeah, it was huge. Um, it was a dance, right? There, yeah, and it was huge. But he, oh my God, Ellen. Yeah, but he signed a multi-album deal and never released an album. And I'm just like, uh, so I, I have to, because yeah. Solento came up, we have to share this story because it's <laughs> oh. it's one of our few, uh, you know, being on on uh, on the margins of, of the capital M music uh-huh. industry, it's one of our few, like, juicy, incredible stories. But so uh, uh, a few years ago during the platform tour, we were invited to support Radiohead on tour, which is, which was awesome. Um, they're really wonderful, honestly. Um, and yeah. Uh, for for some reason there we, was a train strike there was a train strike in exactly. france <laughs> yes, there, was <laughs> there was a train there was exactly there was a train strike in france and we had to get to barcelona and so usually what would have happened was you know we'd we'd booked a we'd booked a train um but instead everybody who was performing in barcelona for primavera i believe it was mm-hmm. and a number of other festivals were happening this was like peak summer were stuck on this one easy jet flight Oh. Um, no, Ryanair flight. Sorry, it was a Ryanair flight. So budget airline. Um, and <laughs> like so, the whole Radiohead crew. Yeah, exactly. So, like which the is, band on Ryanair was hilarious. Which is, which is really funny. And so, yeah, in, in that particular circumstance, obviously with Radiohead traveling, I mean, like not so much everybody in the band, but like Tom York is, mm. of, as someone who is like insanely famous in the 90s, which means you're like mega famous. <laughs> He's also very distinct looking, you know, um, being on a uh, Ryanair flight or whatever is a... Uh, uh, is quite um uh, uh yeah it, it's quite funny but the uh so anyway so so we all had to get on this flight and while we were waiting we were in kind of like we got like speedy boarding or something because we had gear on us there was a kid and i say kid because like he must have been 16 or yeah. something I mean, he looked 16 who had printed out his boarding pass and you know sometimes when you you print things weird and basically like it takes up the whole sheet yeah it's like yeah he had like the, his <laughs> tiny little qr code was instead the whole size of like an a4 page <laughs> <laughs> and so he came up to us with our tour manager at the time and was like, Hey, like, is this the flight to Barcelona or whatever uh, with an American accent? And we we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, that, yeah, we're, we're all going like, like, like come through anyway. And so, uh, we, we get on the plane, we board the plane and this kid sits next to our, our tour manager. Um, and for the duration of the flight is like kind of talking to him and our tour manager is kind of like, Hey, you know, so like, what are you up to? Are you going to festivals? Are you playing a festival or what's the deal? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a show. I'm not playing a festival. Like, and, and yeah, I forget. He was doing like a showcase. Or it was something. like a showcase oh. or something. And I forget how it came up. Cause I wasn't part of the conversation, but over the course of, of the, the plane ride, 
he was basically trying to explain to our sweet tour manager who like wasn't you know was just completely oblivious of this being like I'm kind of a big deal like I'm <laughs> showing him these like videos exactly of like Ellen doing the nay nay and like yes. all these pictures of him with like A-list celebrities or whatever and our tour manager was also trying to explain being like oh that's amazing like you might not know, but you know, um, there's also a bunch of famous musicians on this flight too. Like there's this band Radiohead and he was like, who the fuck are Radiohead? <laughs> so oh, this like really funny, uh, funny crossover. But, but what our joke is, or our joke at least with that plane is that, um, if indeed that plane would have gone down, <laughs> we would have been the trivia question <laughs> because oh the God. trivia question would have been in the plane that killed Radiohead and Silento, who did the Nene, who were the other bands? <laughs> 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 oh my god um, that's so dark yeah but but, it, it, but it's actually it's the truth i mean i mean sadly i didn't get to talk to him very much because i um um but but that but there was very much that feeling in reflection afterwards talking to their tour managers being like wow like you know you had and i say kid not in a pejorative sense i mean he looked like a very very young man oh yeah um, no, i know what you mean i know what you mean who is you know the subject of a global phenomenon and yet as far as I was aware, everybody knew the Nene and nobody really knew who he was. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and so even, I mean, if he signed that deal, I hope to hell that he, he made a ton of money. Do you know what I'm saying? Because again, it's one of those strange Some deals. Some doesn't get unlocked until you deliver though. I know, That's but I thing, hope, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I hope to hell that that happened because. Yeah, me too. Um, and cause if I remember correctly, it was also, didn't Madonna, like that was the first product of like this company that Madonna founded that basically came up with dances and then tried to match them to artists. There's a whole story about that particular thing. Yes, anyway. I, I, yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that was that, that was the one where there was like essentially like a whole, like sort of like, like different dance troops that essentially were troops, like, like dance groups, not troops that are like child soldiers, um, but like dance <laughs> troops that, um, that were just sort of making YouTube videos that were just doing the dance and it'd be like different, like different, different troops that were doing it. And they were essentially trying to get the song more and more and more popular. And yep. yeah, like, yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that I take to heart. And I think it's one of the things that sort of spurred some of my own writing about this. And I think it's something that maybe, lean the gas off of a little bit recently is that I followed viral trends a lot. I wrote about viral trends a lot when I was like, I guess in my early twenties, just cause I liked Vine and I liked just sort of like seeing viral things happen because that I like, I remember like Soldier Boy. I remember Soldier Boy when I was a kid um, in high school. And so like, I just loved following the stuff from, the, from there. I think there's a lot of interesting things that happened in that space. But as I got older and I think that's similar to when I was in college, like I was in college, and well, it's like when I was younger, I liked college sports a lot. And then as soon as I got to college, I just couldn't really enjoy college sports just because I was the same age as the kids that were playing. And it was just very weird to me that because I worked at our college library and it was weird that I got paid to sit at the library on a sat on a Sunday night doing nothing. And these kids that were like football stars or like doing all this stuff, it would be on national television to like tens of millions of people watching got paid nothing. And that like cognitive dissonance, which is shameful. Yeah, shameful yeah. yeah. And I just couldn't really stomach it at a, at a certain point. It was like, okay, I just can't really even enjoy this. Cause I just, it's just too much of like a, a, a just too weird to me. And I think like a lot of viral trends and stuff started hitting that sort of same effect 
probably like five or six years ago for me where I would see a, something viral happen and I was always interested to sort of follow it. But I was always really, really like, I hope they get a second hit. I hope they get a third hit because they don't only get one hit. It, it's just like, I know what's going to happen. They'll have this like moment in the sun for like six to nine months. They'll pot another single. It won't do that well. They'll have a third single. It'll do very, very badly. And then I'll go to their Twitter or Instagram account in like two years and they'll get like, 37 likes on a photo of them trying to like promote a new song. And I'll just be like, uh, did you ever read that, uh, Doreen St. Felix article in the fader? Um, it's called black teens are breaking the internet and seeing none of the profits. Yeah. It's from a while ago. It's from like five years ago. It's did excellent. you read that? Excellent. Excellent. Oh yeah, no, definitely. That was, I'm, I, that was a very, that's a great piece. And no, and that also, again, yeah. was a similar around the same time that I was doing a lot of my own writing on this stuff where it was sort of like, sort of seeing that cycle play out just got, it's, it's really just sort of exhausting. It's sort of a bit, a bit exhausting after a while. And so I just sort of, I don't know. I think that's why like even my opinion of something like TikTok, which like is all people can talk about in music is TikTok. It's a TikTok hit. It's popular on TikTok. It's just, I've been through this before. I've like, if you read stories about YouTube, the exact same thing as people write about TikTok. It's like almost the exact same playbook happening all over again. And I just hope that the kids that do it, if you like, if you get sudden fame, I hope you get something from it. Like Matt, you were saying earlier, it's like, I hope Silento got like a decent chunk of cash from that. Otherwise, I don't, it's just like you're, I, I also just don't know what that does mentally in a way where I'm just sort of, I always wonder like how you like process that level of fame and attention like, mm-hmm. I, I think, like, for myself, I am not, like, a famous person at all, but I am a very minor, 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 like, public figure just because I write and I appear on podcasts and things or whatever. And I remember I left a library one day, and someone was like, are you David? And I was like, what? And they were like, oh, I like your <laughs> writing. And I was like, who are you? And they were just someone that liked my writing as I was leaving a library, like, a couple years ago. And they were really nice, very friendly, but I was just like, oh, that's weird. I, that's, I don't know how much I could like do that, but, and so well, I just wait know. till you get that new headshot. It's gonna, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I mean, actually was, you were talking about Radiohead. This is a, a, a slight aside. I apologize, but it's like, as you were talking about Radiohead, I was just sort of thinking in my head, I was like, Radiohead's so cool. I've loved Radiohead for like the last, like for almost half of my life. I've loved Radiohead. I wonder what they're like. It'd be really cool to meet them. And I was just sort of like, but why? What would happen if I met them? And it's sort of like the celeb- the role of celebrity in music is something that is certainly written about and, and discussed a lot. But it, even for myself, when I catch myself sort of just like fantasizing about like musicians that I like, it's like, well, what do you think is going to happen if you like, if I met Tom York, would I be like, oh, I'm really hyped to say I really loved your music, but I don't really have anything else to say <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. I mean, they are, they are actually really wonderful. And, and for us, I think it was like, it's one of the few exposures we've had to like what real fame is like in a sense. I mean, the funny thing about the tour, our joke was like, it's like an internship for a job that you're certainly never going to get, you know? So you, you got to like LARP this kind of existence because they're very generous. I mean, honestly, like we were told multiple times by people at the label, like this doesn't happen, right? You don't as a support well, panel. Yeah, we should say that they paid us really well. fairly. Yeah. Usually when you do that kind of high profile um, opening slot, often the label will pay or you would have to pay yourself. And Radiohead paid us a fee, which was like really generous. They were also generous with like their equipment. They let some of our stuff travel with them. I mean, I don't think it was there the usual There were times situation. where they were apologizing for like their sound, sound check going over. And I'm like, guys, like... <laughs> 
like no one's here to see us you know what I mean but like they were very conscientious and like but but yeah getting a window into that world in a sense it's like I mean if you're hearing this then you're listening to the shorter free version if you're enjoying what we're doing and would like to hear the full episode please visit patreon.com slash interdependence and become a patron